so the Greeks, if you ever read kind of some of their Olympic training, they would just have you their mean, athletes. Like, like way back. I'm in the talking day? like way back in the day, like the barefoot about, runners. Okay, you're talking about like <laughs> oh yeah, barefoot runners. They're still barefoot runners now. Dude. That's true. Okay, that's true. <laughs> um, like Julius Caesar. There we go. Is that better? So he was a Roman, but okay, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I just keep getting better and better. Um, they would just have their athletes. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for listening. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And my name is Patrick Ollinger. I am also an athlete and endurance coach here in Atlanta. We had such a good time talking to Patrick after the Chicago Marathon that we decided that we'd make Patrick a more permanent fixture here on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. So I'm glad you're here, man. Glad to be here. Um, lots going on in the world of endurance sports. Lots of things that, that Patrick and I want to talk about. Uh, every time... Time goes by and things are happening and marathons are taking place and cross-country championships are going on. There just leaves us so much to talk about. So, want to hop right in? Let's do it. All Absolutely. Right, very good. Did anybody besides me pay attention to the cross-country NCAA championships a couple of weeks ago? So, did you watch them? Uh, I didn't watch them, but I did follow it on my phone. Right on. Me too. Um, yeah, actually, if you if you if you wanted to watch them. You had to sign up for uh, a subscription to FlowTrack, yes, which is thirty dollars a month. Yes, um, and you got Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. You got to see all of it, um, but uh, but but yeah, a lot of people were saying that that's a little bit too much to pay to watch cross country meet you know streaming television. <laughs> yeah, and to those of you who are, are newer to the track and field world, FlowTrack, I believe it started off as a free service, oh, and then nice. it was like a couple dollars, and then. <laughs> So we'll see what happens with that. They're like, they're like drug pushers. They like, yeah. they like get you get you hooked on it, and then they charge you thirty bucks a month. I mean, that's like Net- Spotify is ten bucks a month. Netflix is yeah. getting ready to raise their price, and people are all fired up about that. And it's going to be eleven dollars a month. It's yeah. like Flow Track. If you want to watch Track and Field, though, it's thirty dollars a month. But, yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, so didn't watch it on there, but did watch all the updates and. Uh, the women's race was won by the favorite, who everybody expected to win, a, a woman named Edna Kurgat, um, and she uh, was running for the University of New Mexico. They also won as a team. Uh, the men's race was won by the favorite, um, who I actually really wanted to win, a guy named Justin Knight uh, from Syracuse. Um, he uh, he won the men's race uh, over a couple of guys from Northern Arizona, uh, and then Northern Arizona ended up winning the team race, and a really impressive uh, race on their part. They, uh, they they won last year, and they defended their title and, and, and won this year, which is the only thing harder than, than winning a title is defending a title. So, That's exactly right. Yeah, so, so that was pretty impressive. Uh, but but crunching the numbers and kind of looking at that, there was uh, the folks at Let'sRun.com crunched the numbers and, and talked a little bit about some of the, the ins and outs of the race, That some stuff that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and in making the point that it was really, really hard to, to win a championship... Um, they were talking about how everything kind of has to go right. Um, and they were also talking about how good you have to be, frankly. Um, but they said that, that um, if you look at the, the gap between the first place finisher and the 10th place finisher in both the men's and the women's race, um, in the women's race, the gap from the first place finisher to the 10th place finisher was the same as the 10th place finisher to the 42nd place finisher. Yeah. <laughs> which is incredible. Um, and so, so I mean, there's there's as much difference between 42nd and 10th as there is between 10th and 1st. Um, and then the men's race, there was a, the gap between 1st and 10th was the same as 10th through 58th. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, I mean, if somebody comes to you and says, yeah, I finished 30th in the NCAA championships, that's super impressive mm-hmm. because they were essentially, I mean, they're right next to top 10, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, super incredible there. Um, but then I thought, I thought it was really interesting also, um, they talked about, they, they looked at the returning underclassmen All-Americans from last year. So, so 2016, the people who were All-American last year. So All-American, by the way, is top 40. Um, and so if you finish top 40 in the race, that you're, you're, you're named an All-American in cross country. Um, which, again, I mean, you have to be pretty close to the top 10 to be a, an All-American since there's such a small gap between 10th and 40th. But anyway, um, uh, and they, they, they said, all right, well, let's, let's look at, specifically, let's look at men versus women. Um, and they said, in fact... A lot of, about half of the men and women who were All-Americans in 2016, when they came back in 2017, actually ran worse than they did last year, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty incredible. I mean, uh, for the women specifically, uh, or for the men, um, it said that there were 18 um, returning underclassmen, um, and nine of them ran worse or didn't even uh, compete in 2017. So didn't even make their team or were injured or something else like that. So nine of them ran worse. For the women, there were 30 returning All-Americans, um, and only five of them, five out of the 30 returning All-Americans, uh, uh, finished higher in 2017 than they did in 2016. Um, the other 25 there didn't run or they, they finished worse than they did last year. Um, I, I was just really struck by that. The, 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 you, you would presume particularly for these young runners, that they're getting progressively better, always getting better, always mm-hmm. getting faster and faster and faster. But injuries and, and retrogressions happen even among young runners, right? Absolutely. And I think the big takeaway, so at first it's very counterintuitive to hear that, right? You think, well, how could this be? If you are, you know, 10th as a freshman, you'll be 5th as a sophomore, five people graduate. You and, you, just, and, you, and you'll be champion just, as a senior, right? Right, right. Just kind of the back of the envelope, you know, conversion. But that just shows how big of an impact injuries have on the field in yeah, NCAAs. True. I mean, um, I remember reading somewhere that roughly 40% of runner, NCAA runners get hurt in a given year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's almost, you could just walk down the line and say, all right, going to make it, not going to make it, going to make it, <laughs> not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, I don't know how many of those who returned and, you know, weren't All-American this year, I don't know how many just couldn't even compete in the race. Mm-hmm. But even if they competed, they may have been knocked out for September. Right. You know, which severely compromised their training. Yeah. So that just shows how much of NCAA, you know, competitive running really comes down to who can stay the healthiest yeah. while training at such an intense level. Excellent point. Yeah, totally. Because, you know, the one thing, I was telling somebody this this morning at the trail run, that that the ideal schedule is the one that you can do consistently. Yes. You know, and the, and the, the golden rule of endurance training is, is you get out there and, and you're consistent, like... Doing weeks and weeks and weeks on end matters a whole lot more than one single workout or one set of workouts or something like that. Um, you know, and, and, and so, yeah, being able to find that consistency is hard. Um, you know, I mean, we, we think about, or I think about at least, um, you know, all the moving parts in my life now. You know, kids and jobs and all that sort of thing. And, and all adults have these sort of things. And you think about college. Well, college, when I was a collegiate runner, my life was geared around it. And yeah. you think, oh, well, you know, it wouldn't be all that hard that, you know, collegiate runners shouldn't be having bad races because they're, but they clearly, you know, have bad races as well. And, and all these things happen to them too. You mentioned injuries, you know, the, the highest, uh, the highest rate of injury of any high school sport. Is it? No. Girls, girls cross country. It makes a lot of sense. Higher than football, higher than wrestling. 
uh, 49% of, of high school girls in the United States who run cross country get injured. Yeah. 49, that's half. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. And that also plays into these findings because it sounded like there was even greater turnover mm-hmm. among the women than the men. And just yeah, anecdotally, totally. I definitely found that as a collegiate runner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also worth mentioning, too, since I'm the father of twins, and if you've been on our Facebook page, you've seen the, the, the cover photo of the twins um, wearing the ITL hat. But uh, uh, there was a couple of twins from the University of Georgia, local twins here. Well, not local. They're actually from New England, but that's okay. Um, uh, they're, they're UGA Bulldogs here uh, named Samantha and Jessica Drop is their last name. Uh, Samantha finished 30th, and Jessica was 31st. <laughs> that is incredible. <laughs> Separate, and they're, they're fraternal twins too. So you know, but but nonetheless, they they were separated by 0.5 seconds. There, um, they uh, they raced each other seven times this fall. Uh, seven different races. Jessica uh, beat Samantha four times, and Samantha beat Jessica three times. <laughs> oh wow! So if they had another race; they would yeah. just flip and even out. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then uh, if you actually go through and look at the gap between them in their seven races. Um, it was 0.5 seconds, 4.5 seconds, 2.7 seconds, 1.7 seconds, 8.5 seconds. I don't know what happened that day. 5.2 <laughs> seconds and 4.3 seconds. Um, and so, I'm, I mean, what's that average? It's, you know, less than five seconds. <laughs> and, yeah, and a second a mile, essentially. Yeah, yeah. To even put it even more so. Yeah, it, what's, that's fascinating, too, because that doesn't answer anything about nature versus mer- nurture, because they're both doing the same training program. Yeah, yeah, huh. and, and, they, and, and they, don't have, they don't have exactly the same nature, don't have exactly the same nature, because they're not identical, they're right. fraternal. Right. And so, if they had the exact same genes, like identical twins do, then you might be able to look at that, but they have, they don't. They have a combination of the same genes, but they have different combinations. So, yeah. Uh, there's a couple other twins, too. Um uh, that competed for Minnesota, um, a couple of girls also, um, uh, Bethany has, and I can't remember her, her sister's name, uh, but they were, they were only 1.7 seconds apart. Um, but they were, uh, 70th and 74th. Megan was the other one's name. Uh, 70th and 74th and only 1.7 seconds separated 70th and 74th because that's how jammed up they are there at the NCAA meet. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, anyway. So yeah. I I gotta tell you what's interesting to that. So I don't know if I've told you this, but we had a twin on our cross country team in college. So it was Hillary a, and, a single twin or so it was Hillary and Haley Neal. Hillary went to Sanford. Mm-hmm. Haley went to Florida. <laughs> but I remember talking to somebody. So they both won between the two of them like twelve state championships in high school. Right. So if you were in the state of Florida for those two years that those two were there, <laughs> you you were out of luck. Right on. Because they I mean, finished one, two, and pretty much every race between four hundred and sixteen hundred, and then volleyball. And <laughs> you know. well, it's um, you know, it, you kind of wonder was should they have been finishing one, two, or should they have been like running different events and just sort of running the table, you know? So one of them wins the four hundred, the eight hundred, the other one wins the the sixteen hundred, the two mile. Yeah, I'm totally planning for my my son's own. Uh, uh, careers by the way mm-hmm. um anyway all right so shifting gears here you saw camille heron ultra runner yep won the tunnel hill 100 in vienna illinois and set a new record uh for the fastest 100 miler ever run by a woman um she ran uh 12 hours and a little bit over 12 hours and 40 minutes like 12 hours and 42 minutes i want to say it was um it's a road 100 but it's it's a certified 100 uh, mile distance course um and the record was certified itself. It was certified by USA Track and Field. 
Um, it's her first hundred. Um, that's seven thirty nine per mile uh, that she averaged for uh, for a hundred miles, and that includes like stopping and and any other thing like that that she might have done along the way. So essentially, she ran you know seven forty per mile for a hundred miles, including stopping and all that sort of thing. Um, Jeez. Yeah. So you wonder what was her moving average, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Now her moving average was probably you know seven twenty something like that, right? Okay. Um, because yeah, she did stop along the way. Uh, in particular, they said that that about three quarters of the race she stopped and had a beer, um, which I can't imagine. But yeah, I, I can't think of any nutritional benefits that would provide. <laughs> Pat, Patrick and I were, were were at a wedding last night. And I had a couple of beers at that wedding. I woke up this morning feeling terrible after like two beers and and she's doing them during a hundred mile race I, but there was a uh, so when the running boom first took off in the 70s there was a there was a subculture of people who ran and they drank beer during runs and like they would like fuel themselves during marathons with with beer um and and reading about it it said that the thing that they said that the reason why it helped is because beer had a lot of zinc in it <laughs> zinc okay yeah because yeah. you know everybody needs zinc right yeah um i don't think i've ever run and said i need more zinc right now yeah you you, you never you never felt a <laughs> zinc bonk um yeah no me neither um that, that was definitely i think one of those sort of justifications for somebody who just wanted to drink beer during a run uh but no she said that she had had a bunch of sugary stuff you know mm-hmm. she, she was drinking sports drinks and taking gels and all those things you expect her to do um and and she she needed something to kind of break that apart um, and so she had a beer around the 70 mile mark or so and yeah, she said it worked for her. I mean, clearly she broke, she literally broke the, the hundred mile record by about an hour. Um, and there's been some brilliant women trail runners over the years and, and ultra marathoners over the years. So, so to do that, that's pretty incredible. Um, she actually, so she's not coming from nowhere, by the way. I, did, I think I did, did, did just say that this was her first hundred miler, uh, but she actually won the comrades marathon, um, in South Africa earlier this year. Then she tried to, to turn around and do Western States, the most prestigious and well-known 100-miler. Uh, I think, like, the 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 first big, huge 100-miler. Uh, she tried to do that a, a few weeks later and actually DNF'd. Um, but, um, but, yeah, Camille Heron, obviously a brilliant performance there. Um, she uh, she also, I don't know if you saw this, She she's sponsored by Nike. Mm-hmm. Nike gave her some of the those Vaporfly shoes that... Uh, Elliot Kipchoge won or, or wore during the uh, during the the sub two and the Shalane Flanagan wore yeah. during uh, during the New York City Marathon. Uh, they gave her a pair of those, and so she actually was wearing those during her hundred miler. And that feels contradictory to me that she cares enough about her performance and she wants to go fast enough that she's wearing racing flats, marathon racing flats for this road hundred, but then she stops to drink a beer. Something about that feels contradictory. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe the uh, decision making skills at mile 70 were a little compromised right yeah I mean we talk about like in, in ultra events we talk about like mouthfeel and if and if you want to take something for mouthfeel and, and, and you need something to mentally break that up um, that makes sense um, like I know I know somebody who or I know a lot of people who like eat bacon and stuff when they're on the bike in an Ironman because they, 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 they need something salty and kind of chewy to, to, to break up all the gels and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, let's be clear. That doesn't do anything for your performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I'd recommend that to anybody. Yeah, no, I definitely don't either. But, I mean, people talk about, okay, they need it for mouthfeel. Well, okay, that's cool. But, but yeah, it definitely is not going to help you go any faster. Um, so, anyway, speaking also of the New York City Marathon. 
Um, great men's race, but that's not what we're going to talk about. The the men's race literally came down to the last point two out of twenty six point two. Women's race won by Shalane Flanagan. What do you think, Patrick? Super happy for her. I mean, her coming into the finish line and uh, <laughs> screaming those choice words. I mean, that those were like great running moments. Because first of all. To me, Shailene Flanagan is almost similar to Michael Jordan in the early 90s, oh, where yeah, just yeah. this elite athlete... They, that, they both went to UNC, which is... Oh, there you go. I didn't even think about that one. Yeah, I did, because I don't like UNC, but that's okay. I'm not going <laughs> to go off on that. Keep but going. just an elite athlete that just seemed to never quite have that championship, right? Mm. I mean, Jordan for years was stymied by the Pistons, and mm. you know, Shailene, uh, she was gunning for Boston and then had a lower back injury. She just seemed to always have something pop up or some things not quite go her way and so it was just fantastic to see her you know say new york city is my final marathon my final major marathon and then it all works out i mean it was you you always want to see athletes like that who've been so dedicated for so long and so talented and are so likable right you want to see them succeed so it was a good day for the running community i thought it's it said a lot about her that so many people were so happy for that's a good point. Yeah, um, folks are fired up. It was understandably so. I mean, it, it was an exciting race, mm-hmm. just in and of itself. Because mm-hmm. uh, she's running alongside the defending champion and the person who won Boston. Right. So, like, the final group was Shalane Flanagan, the the two time repeat champion of New York City, yeah. and the winner from Boston. Right. And so, so I mean, like, like even that, and then she was able to run away from him on that vicious twenty three or, or twenty. 24th mile hill that fifth avenue hill that's kind of where she got away from him um mm-hmm. and 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 really buried him actually over the course of that last 5k um ended up winning by about a minute um, yeah that 5k was a one heck of a 5k for a marathon yeah yeah no it was it was um and i agree with you too um i i've joked with a couple of people that i that i'm not a big shalane flanagan fan i actually like shalane flanagan just fine i just don't appreciate the fact that she went to unc <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um but uh, I like Shalane Flanagan. I was glad to see her win. And I totally agree with what you're saying about, like, it's good to see somebody who's always second and always third and always on the podium and somebody who's always well-known because, I mean, she's a silver medalist in the Olympic 10,000 meters. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's good to see. That's the reason why I was pulling for Justin Knight in the NCAA cross-country championship. Yes. It's because cause he's, he's finished in the top 10 at the NCAA meet, like, seven times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also feel a personal sense with that. In my collegiate career, I won one race, and I finished second seven times. <laughs> wow. Who, who was the guy that kept beating you? Was it the same one? It wasn't the same person. Okay. That's the problem. It was, it, was like, it was like, you know, oh, I'm going to totally win this race. And some random dude from Ole Miss would show up, or, you mm-hmm. know, they would have recruited somebody new at Auburn, and, and he would outkick me. But anyway... Um, so yeah, I, I definitely have even even a, a, a better than normal affinity for people who are always near the top. Um, and Shalane Flanagan too. She also um, not only was she always near the front, but a lot of those races she like made the race. Yes. Um, you know, it's kind of like that that you know the super famous Steve Prefontaine five thousand meters from from the nineteen seventy four Olympics. Like he made that race and then yeah. he finished fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so. There were so many races where she took it out hard and she went after the win and, and she ended up leading other people to brilliant performances and she would finish fourth. 
Right, and still run a respectable, or not just respectable, very good time yourself. Right. But the other person would be a world record or something right. along those lines. Right, yeah. Um, now, along that lines, there was somebody, um, uh, an athlete that I coached, Michelle, who's a big fan of, of sports in general, actually, I've come to learn, but also um, a, a, a fan of Shalane uh, and a big fan of professional running. And, and she said, you know, one thing that's kind of getting missed in a lot of these conversations about Shalane Flanagan's performance is that Shalane Flanagan didn't go out in this race to try and and make the race. Like, she didn't take the lead. Um, she ran. She was running to win. She kind of tucked into the pack and, and said, you know what, I want to win this race as mm-hmm. opposed to making this race great for everybody else. Um, and lo and behold, she ends up winning her first major marathon. That's a great point. Um, I thought it was a great point, too. And so kind of we'll see whether Shalane Flanagan runs anymore. She had said going into this one that, that, like Patrick said, that this is going to be her last big one. I don't think she's made an announcement yet about whether it's truly going to be her last one. Her, has she? She has not, and it seems yeah. to be uh, a, bit, a bit more uh, on the fence now in, in interviews. Let's just put it that way. I, I can't imagine that she's not going to run Boston. That's true. She, I mean, she's from Marblehead, Massachusetts. I mean, like, literally she has said that Boston is her hometown race. She looks at Boston, and she's like... It's it's the race that she literally grew up watching as a kid, mm-hmm. you know. And in and in, I mean, as big a deal as, as the Boston Marathon is everywhere, it's an enormous deal, like culturally, in yes. not just among runners, but but among everybody in New England. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine that she's going to to be like, ah, well, you know, I could I could run one more Boston, but I'm not going to. I can't imagine that. Right. But you know, we'll see. Maybe not go for the win, but at least be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and what I really like appreciate about Shalene, too, is she's such a great ambassador for the sport. I mm-hmm. mean, she's done so much to encourage other women to continue training hard and to continue to kind of reach for the stars and push themselves. I mean, after winning the marathon, she actually returned to the finish line to hand out medals. That was cool. You know, several hours later. I mean, yeah. to me, that just shows there's a genuine passion there that you can pick up on in any interview she has. Um, it really just makes... You know, it makes for it makes it easier to be a fan. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, it's it's funny that there's over the course of the last decade, the last really more recent than that, last five years or so, it's become a tradition at Kona that the champions will show up in the last hour, mm-hmm. like the pros who won it in you know under nine hours and eight hours something will always show up between sixteen and seventeen hours. In that last hour, and hand out medals and, and shake hands with finishers and all that sort of thing, um, and uh, I think it would be cool if maybe that became like more of a tradition inside major marathons as well. Um, we'll see. Maybe she set the set the precedent. Um, I, one other thing I do I want to want to say about her, Shalane Flanagan. Speaking of genes, um, is uh, and speaking of nature, she has really good running genes. You know, yes. Um, and uh, her dad and her mom were both interviewed afterwards, and and her dad said. Um, was talking a lot about, you know, why this happened and that sort of thing. And her dad said, quote, I think the biggest factor was her 15 months off from marathons after the Rio Olympics. That gave her a complete mental and physical rest so she could build into a great peak for New York. Exactly. Um, Yeah, I mean, she was injured. I mean, she had a serious injury, too. She had a... It was was like a lower back... Pelvis uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and It was a fracture, actually, which is pretty significant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and so she was forced to miss Boston. You know, she tearfully had to to pull out of that because again, Boston's like her race. Um, and uh, but it forced her to make this break. 
And then she ends up having the biggest one she's ever had. I mean, she hadn't run one since the Olympics. She hadn't run one since the summer of, of 2016. Um, and then she comes out and has her biggest win ever. So resting, breaking, periodizing is what we're going to talk about here in just a minute. So, um, yeah, it's obviously a huge factor in, in successful athletes' preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's talk about some research. Let's do it. So, me- Pat, Pat tell, tell us about the piece you found, dude. All right, so I found a, uh, some research. Um, so there's a new study in the journal uh, Psychology of Sport and Exercise. It was done by Noel Brick and his team at Ulster University, and they wanted to know how smiling affects a runner's performance. And so Smiling? Smiling. Like physically smiling? Yes. Right. So first of all, it was noted in an article of Wired that Kipchoge actually um, intentionally smiles throughout the race, as a means to kind of relax himself and to kind of deactivate some of the stress of racing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think he even talked about it in the Breaking Two uh, documentary mm-hmm. briefly. So, uh, and that's one of the reasons why people like him so much. Yes, you know, mm-hmm. um, because he smiles so much and he's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, keep going. And so, uh, these academics started to study how smiling affects a runner's performance. So they had twenty-four runners complete a series of six-minute runs. And they wanted to measure their running economy, which for those of you who don't know, that's essentially a way of measuring the efficiency um, of how much distance a runner um, can carry at what speed given a certain amount of oxygen. Right, right. And so, so the more efficient you are, the faster you can run with less effort. Exactly. Yeah. Um, as well as perceptual outcomes. So they would A, measure how much oxygen they're consuming, compare that to how fast they're going, and then they would say, okay, how did that feel? Do you, did that feel hard? Give me a, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how did that feel? And during, so they would have these uh, runners run, and they'd either be instructed to smile, to frown, um, or to uh, relax their hands and upper body. And they found that running economy um, was actually in- increased by 2% when smiling. Hmm. So that's pretty phenomenal, for those of you who don't know. That oh, yeah. is, that's comparable to seeing... Um, you said 2%? 2%. That's yeah. comparable to studies that have looked at months of plyometrics or heavy weight training. Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's actually the same... Uh, we've talked before on this podcast about hills, and, and like if you include hills, you get 2%. Yes. Yeah. So they, they concluded <laughs> that's, this... That's, that's 30 seconds in a 20-minute 20, 20 uh, 5K, that's 30 seconds. Whew. Yeah, I know, right? That's like a different time zone. 2%, okay, do, do the back of the back of the math real quick. Uh, 30... Let's see, three-hour marathon would be 180 minutes. So 2% of 180 minutes would be 3.6 minutes. Good heavens. That's, yeah. the, that's the between qualifying for Boston. Oh, yeah. 3.6 minutes. That's three minutes and 36 seconds. Oh, that's huge. That's yeah. fantastic. Anyway, keep going. So anyway, so this was one of the first studies I know of where they looked at smiling mm-hmm. and the effect it has <laughs> on racing. And I found it particularly... And for, uh, the, for those of you at home, as Patrick just said smiling, he just put on a big smile. Yeah. I, so I love this study because I, for years, would tell runners, when you're going through the race, sometimes just force a smile, because you want you need to remind yourself that you're doing this for fun. Yes, it hurts, but you don't want to spiral into that dark place where you're like, I don't like this. My legs hurt. Why am I out here? Mm-hmm. And it was just something I found kind of intuitive that you know we're doing this for fun. We're doing this because we enjoy this. This is not war or poverty. Let's remember what we're doing here. <laughs> And and then I found this study and just thought it was fantastic. So I'm a I'm a big proponent of this. And oddly enough, I was at a race yesterday where a good friend of mine 
he told me that he was in the, in the middle of the race and he thought about that advice I had given him and, and he actually started smiling throughout the race and, and huh. thought it actually kind of helped him out. But there were some interesting studies here. There were some interesting subplots to this study too, which I found pretty interesting. I, I thought that was cool too. Well, so before we get into those, is there is there a theory about why it makes you more efficient? Yes. They think it helps relax the rest of your body. So first of all, you know, like a lot of things, a lot of our facial yeah. expressions, it's a two-way street. We right. feel sad, so then we look sad, and then we feel even sadder than we did we were before. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a feedback loop. It's a, it's a feedback yeah. loop, right? Yeah. Um, so they, they think that smiling actually helps kind of uh, relax your body a bit um, and kind of helps you kind of stay smooth. Yeah. Um, the, the, it kind of promotes a more relaxed emotional state and in turn reduces kind of the um, some of the nervous system activity that kind of helps you drive forward. Well, and, and, we, and we've talked on this on this podcast before about the link between the brain and the body mm-hmm. and about how it's a link that a lot of people don't entirely understand. Yes. It's, it's, not, it's not that your brain is overriding your body. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, your brain and your body are very much working in concert. Very much so. Um, and so, so the idea of, of, of you know mind over matter, or or um, you know you have your your brain is forcing your body. That's actually not how it works. Uh, your brain is conspiring with your body to actually you know sabotage mm-hmm. you potentially. Yes. And so, so yeah, if you can change your mindset, mm-hmm. um, that can change your your your, your physicality as well. Um, and so, it's just sort of interesting to, to think about that being something that. You, you have a physical cue that changes your mindset, which then in turn goes back to changing your physicality. That's right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very interesting. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, and then kind of along those same lines, they found that not only did running economy increase, but when they asked people to frown or to not smile, it actually mm-hmm. increased their perceived effort, huh. um, which is a big deal because like you said... So it made the race feel harder. It made the race feel harder, mm-hmm. and when the race feels harder, you inevitably slow down. Right. No matter, I mean, almost no matter who you are, no matter how much of right. a professional are, professional right. you are, the mind and body are not two separate entities. Right. They work in concert together. Right. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. So running economy increased, mm-hmm. and perceived effort was found to increase um, when you were not smiling. Mm-hmm. Now, one note from the, from the author about perceived effort. There were some subtleties in gender difference. Yeah. Okay. As an absolute surprise to nobody, it was found that men claim the pace is easy when the scientist who is asking is a woman. Yeah. So, which is academic jargon for saying men are mostly full of it when right. they're asked by a woman to assess their own strength. Right. So, I found that pretty remarkable. So, long story short, if we're at the track and you ask me how it's going, I may say I'm dying. But if one of the women asks, I'm doing fantastic, right. never better, not exactly. a problem for, for a guy like me. What an, I mean, what an interesting subplot. And so they, they recommended in the study that we need to redo it or mm-hmm. so, somebody else needs to replicate the study. Because that's what you do with, with exercise and scientific studies is that people then try and replicate the study, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's kind of how it works. Um, and they, they said, hey, when, when y'all replicate it, whoever's going to do this study next, um, pay attention to the gender differences between, between the subjects and the researchers. Yes. Which... Um, on the one hand, it's fascinating. On the other hand, what a terrible commentary on the male ego. <laughs> you know? It's like it's like it's like wow, we can't even we can't even get over ourselves for the sake of science, you know? Yeah. 
Um, like, oh no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm good. You know. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. yeah. Like e- every physical marker shows that you're completely falling apart, and your pace is like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. Is it hard? No, yeah. something else is happening. So, yeah. And then when she walks out of the room, you turn to one of your guys and say, "Somebody help you out." And get exactly. Some water yeah. Here. You collapse off. The but no, I, I do think that's interesting, and it's funny because because it's one of those things that's simple but not simple. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that's like it's like oh, just smile and you'll feel better. Um, well, there's that's true, but then there's actually more to it than that, which mm-hmm. I think is just kind of fascinating. Um, yeah. And then so one so one runner did ask me, pulled me aside, and said I, I saw the article you posted on Facebook, but he said, "Are you, am I?" supposed to be smiling the entire race like when my face muscles are I said no 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 like you're not the Joker you're not here to kill Batman the study does suggest periodic smiling so maybe twice a mile or so for about 30 seconds when you see a crowd when you see something that makes you happy feel free to um, kind of fan those flames so to speak yeah yeah well I think too it's like um, and and I've said on this podcast before that that because of the way the brain and the body work in concert, whatever you need to do to get your brain in the right place is mm-hmm. kind of what you do, mm-hmm. right? Yes. But at the same time, there are people that you and I both know. They're like, it's race time, and they like they put on their race face and they like and they like force themselves to be serious. Yeah. And you like try and talk to them beforehand, and they won't talk back to you and stuff like that. And so, you know, it kind of makes me think about like those people. Mm-hmm. The, the, and maybe if you're one of those people who's like forcing yourself to be serious mm-hmm. if you're forcing yourself to say oh no it's, it's, it's race time and I gotta be serious and, and, and that kind of thing you might actually be be messing yourself up a little yeah, bit yeah self-sabotaging to some yeah. degree yeah um, yeah and that also gets back to and this is a, a wee bit of a tangent but they have found when they put runners on a treadmill and say yeah. run as hard as you can they don't run as fast right. as if you say, hey, we're just going to do this for fun, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. Yeah. They yeah. end up actually running faster when the goal is not to push themselves to the limit. Which which is a fascinating thing about treadmills as well. So, yeah, we, we talked about that piece of research on here before where, where and I was talking to somebody about it this week, where where if, if a runner is told to run just their regular old pace on a treadmill as mm-hmm. opposed to being on a track and they have no data, um, and so they're, they're totally running by feel, they run up to two minutes slower per mile on a treadmill because treadmills feel harder for whatever reason. Um, interesting. So yeah. yeah, it is kind of interesting. All right, so. Yeah, and if nothing else, the, the whole smiling idea, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> if, if, if this all it turns out to be bunk, you know what? You have some great race pictures. Yep. Yeah. Um, People so. think you're goofy. Yeah. yeah. That's probably okay. That's going to be the case for me anyway, so that's not lost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that, and it's and it's something kind of important to keep in mind. Um, mm. I, you know, sitting on the side of the track before, I've given people a hard time about because somebody will run past me on the track, I'll, I'll be like, "Good job," you know, or, or "Keep it up," or "Well, well done," or something like that, you know. And they'll look at me and they'll go, "Thanks," and and I'm always like, "Don't talk to me," mm-hmm. you know. Focus on the effort. Is hey, you don't need to thank me for that. That's okay. Um, and and I've always kind of given people a good natured hard time about that. Maybe I need to rethink that, man. Mm-hmm. Maybe if somebody's like, "Thank you, George," and um, I should be like, "Hey, that's you know, yeah." It, it's 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 like the uh, the verbal equivalent of smiling. Um, anyway, um, all right. So so I found a study, okay, about recovery, um, and this is from a couple of months ago, um, and it was in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, um, and so it was built around like lifting weights, 
Okay. Um, but given the fact that, that the way the body recovers and all that sort of thing from from endurance athletics and from from lifting weights is similar, then we can at least transfer some of those findings over to to endurance sports. Now there are more systems at play when it comes to to endurance sports, but but nonetheless we can we can transfer some of that. So anyway, it was about whether middle-aged athletes recovered at the same rate as young athletes do. Um, and so um, what they did is they took nine athletes. Uh, nine, they were all men. Um, and nine of them averaged 22, and nine of them averaged age 47. Um, so 18 total athletes is what they took, two groups of nine. Um, and they didn't want to just compare, like, couch potatoes to, to athletes. And so right. in the six months leading up to the study... All of them were recreational weightlifters, and all were doing at least 150 minutes a week of, of strength work, and so two and a half hours worth of strength work. And so they were all accustomed to being in the gym and working out three to four days a week and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and they put them in the lab, and they did this kind of common um, uh, strength thing where they, they strap your foot into this, uh, this thing that looks like a leg extension machine, mm-hmm. and, 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 and you, you do as many... And it, it, puts resistance as you extend and as you contract, um, and they did as much as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. So they basically went to failure on that machine. Okay. Um, and and uh, all nine of them did, and then they, they measured their strength later that day, and then they measured uh, their strength two days later, and then they also measured all these other physical markers around like inflammation and muscle damage and all that sort of thing. And they found that effectively there was no difference between the guys who averaged 47 years old and the guys who averaged 22 years old. Um, so once you get over the age of 60, there's a difference. But they said that guys my age, guys 43 years old, uh, who feel like, oh, well, no, I need an extra recovery day and stuff like that, there's, there's actually not, at least according to this one study, there's not any physical evidence that, that we need more rest than we did 20 years ago. That can't be right. <laughs> Unless those guys are drinking Tom Brady juice or so, whatever. Or well, Barry I mean, Bonds. <laughs> Barry Bonds juice, yeah. yeah. But, but well, I mean, it's funny you say that can't be right as a 30-year-old. And, and I'm looking at it as a 43-year-old, and I'm like, what? I mean, I just can't imagine. But My initial reaction to having just heard you describe that study is they didn't do it long enough. What Maybe. do you mean? Uh, so maybe there wasn't initially a, dif- a measurable difference, but then over time, I feel like there would have to be okay. something emerge. So, so you're saying like maybe if they would have done they would have done that first that first big max test and then mm-hmm. tested it two days later, and then would have done another one the day after that, and then tested it two days later after that. You think that over time it would have showed up? Absolutely, that's a good point. Yeah, because um, because I I agree that that yeah I could. You can come back and gut it out through one workout, but it's not about gutting it out, though. They they they, they said there were physical differences, but, um, but yeah, no, I think that would be different because because it's a it's a accumulation of stress over time mm-hmm. that that might wear on them a little bit more. Um, what the author of the article that I read um, that summarized it, I, I read the article itself, but then the, the the article that summarized it, he suggested that maybe the reason besides perceptual. Besides, yeah. oh, you're over forty. You're a masters runner. You're old now. You can't. You have you recover more. Yeah, were well, the masters athletes? Do they have a woman athlete asking them how they felt? So, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, they're they're like, oh no, I'm good. Yeah, totally recovered. Let's do it again. Meanwhile, they're um, dying in their car. Right. <laughs> um, but um, but 
Um, he said that, that besides the perceptual things, besides the, the, the idea that, that people over 40 just, you know, start to decline and, and, and all that sort of thing, they said besides that, um, one of the differences uh, might be that people in their 40s have more stressors in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so people in their 20s, so, so these guys average 22. Mm-hmm. How stressful was your life when you were 22? Yeah. Not as not as much as forty seven. Right. Me. Yeah. You, you you didn't have kids. You probably. I mean, you, you probably had a job, but but not a manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, if you were if you were a super go getter like you know Patrick Ollinger, you might have owned a house, but probably not. <laughs> you know. Um, Thanks for the plug. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But uh. But they suggested that, and and he also even said like like the nature of your life. He said. When you're when you're 22 years old, you might be like moving around more, whereas 47 year olds sit more, mm-hmm. um, both at their job and when they're at home, mm-hmm. um, that they end up sitting more, and so maybe that that. Um, now I found that difference between being a 21 year old and a 25 year old runner, and yeah. that obviously is an age. That's just mm-hmm. as you said, lifestyle. Right. In college, all right, you sit in class for an hour. Mm-hmm. And then you're up walking around, walking you, from one you, class yeah, to the other. Clamp, you walk across campus. But right? then when I started running as an uh, adult runner, I don't know what you'd call it. Then it was all of a sudden, okay, we're going to sit you in a chair for eight or nine hours. You're going to be wearing dress shoes, which are terrible on your mm-hmm. feet. And then you're going to try to pop out and go for a run. Right. I noticed a lot more muscular issues that I never had right. as right. a 21-year-old. And so, so, so you're talking about the difference between 21 and 25. Add another 20 years to that. Right. And, and now you're talking about the difference between 22 and 47, which is what this study actually looked at. Um, so, so yeah, I think that there, there is something to be said for lifestyle stuff. And so <clears throat> given that then, given that, I think maybe one of the takeaways. So if we assume that, that, you know, the, 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 the differences we talked about, um, if, if, if we, if we take the study for at its face value mm-hmm. and we say, okay, this study is right, mm-hmm. that, that, um, you know, there is no difference and, 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 um, I think then one of the big takeaways for those of us that are in our 40s is to say, okay, I need to be more mindful of my life when I'm not running. Yeah. You know, I need, I need to be, be uh, more attentive to the shoes I'm wearing and, and how much I'm sitting throughout the course of the day and stuff like that. Um, and, and if you do, you'll actually recover significantly better from your workout. You'll recover as well as you did 20 years ago, mm-hmm. potentially. Um, so kind of interesting stuff. Um, anyway... We've been talking for forty minutes about <laughs> news. <laughs> about news and research and all yeah. that sort of thing. So let's. So we, we do want to have a quick uh, conversation today about something that's called periodization. Um, and periodization is is a term inside of endurance sports um, that, in my mind, I was telling somebody just this morning um, that periodization, the concept of periodization, is what separates training from exercising. Um, and and to me, it's fundamental to to what it is that we should be trying to do. Um, as athletes and coaches. So what do you think, Patrick? Do you want to define it for us? Tell us about it. Sure. Um, I'll just start with the definition. So periodization is really just the process of dividing up your training into smaller periods of training where you put an emphasis on a specific system or a specific skill. Mm-hmm. So, he's, so a lot of times, like with high school cross-country runners, you say, all right, this summer we're just going to build miles and build an aerobic base. We're just right. trying to build a base um, aerobic system for you to then build off of so you can then race fast in November. Mm-hmm. So it's really just the, the idea of targeting your training and kind of having specific time periods where you say, for these three to four months, we're going to do this. For these three to four months, we're going to do this. 
Uh, it doesn't mean you ignore your other systems and you just have easy runs or you just right. have hard runs. Right. But it means you're going to put a direct emphasis and your goal is really just to improve one specific system above all others. Because you can't hit all your buckets at once with equal force. Right. I mean, otherwise that's a trip to the doctor's office or... You're just not doing much of anything. Well, yeah, and and, and it also means you're ultimately going to underperform. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's, it's I, I was having a I was having a conversation with with an athlete that I coach a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and and I coach her in a periodized fashion. Yes, you know, and she she had a big peak race that we spent months and months and months preparing her for. She did an Ironman back in August, mm-hmm. and then she took some rest, mm-hmm. and and now we're we're she, her her next big race is not until next July. Or actually, she, she's doing, well, I take that back. She has a big race in March and then another big race in July. Mm-hmm. And so so right now, given that it's December, she's not at her absolute most fit, right? Yeah. She's coming out of recovery. She's transitioning to something else. And she was talking about how frustrated she is that people that she normally runs with are running faster than she is. Mm-hmm. Um, or people that she's normally yeah. faster than are, are, are faster than she is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, I feel out of shape. I feel, and I'm like, well, you are kind of out of shape mm-hmm. because we don't want you in shape in December. When your right. rage is until March. That's right. Um, so, so to me, the difference between like a periodized athlete um, and somebody who just kind of trains, and like I said, the difference to, to, to me is, is is training versus exercise, is that a periodized athlete, they're going to have lower lows because you're going to intentionally get out of shape at yes. certain points along the way. Um, but then that's ultimately going to lead you to higher highs, mm-hmm. right? Um, whereas if you were to chart it out, a non-periodized athlete will just be like solid for the whole year. Mm-hmm. And so so they'll run a race in January, a race in March, a race in August, and a race in, in November. And all of those races are going to be at roughly the same level. Right. But I submit that none of them are going to be the full potential level. Right. They'll all be at a suboptimal level for them and their potential, so to speak. Right. Suboptimal. Exactly. Exactly. So... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and I was going to say, it, it's definitely interesting because, so first of all, I think where people get confused, maybe if you're newer to running, or is you may look at race times, and you may say, all right, if I look at race times for this person over the years, and I just look at their best race, I see linear improvement, right? right? It's almost like the stock market. If you zoom out long enough, it's just linear growth from right. 1900 to now. But when you kind of zoom in year to year, it's a lot of ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of bobbing up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot more variability and there is a lot more of intentionality where you say, okay, you know, I need to have a peak performance in April for Boston. Mm-hmm. So that means these three months need to build a base, an aerobic base. That will then allow me to kind of have um, something to build off of for the lactic threshold and for speed and things of that nature. Um, because you simply can't have more than one or two peak performances in a year. And you've discussed that on the podcast before. Right. Because you really have to almost untrain yourself mm-hmm. and let yourself recover in order to then build build yourself back up. You almost have to tear the pyramid down, so to speak, to kind of rebuild a stronger base. Right. And, and, then, and, then, and then and ultimately it's going to be higher Right. When, when, when you get back there again. And I think that this is the reason, actually, and, and Patrick touched on the reason why we, we said that this is what we wanted to talk about here, is because I think most people are in that place mm-hmm. right now where that yeah. athlete of mine was two days ago. They're in that place where they should be, I mean, if you, if you had a late race, if you had like New York City Marathon or Ironman Florida or something like that, that was in November, um, if you had Ironman Arizona, which was like last weekend... Um, 
even if you had Kona or or Chicago, which was you know almost two months ago, mm-hmm. you should be at a lower place now. Right. You know, you should be at a at a less in shape place at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think people are kind of that's frustrating. That can be frustrating at least. You know, um, and we're here to tell you. If you're out of shape right now, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. I mean, the NCAA athletes we talked about to start off with, yeah. I can guarantee you they are either <coughs> not running right now or just starting to run, and it's a lot of relaxed, casual runs, mm-hmm. you know, where they're not in shape. They're not feeling sharp. Yeah, Shalane Flanagan is not jumping on the track right now trying to run a fast 10K. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she's she's talking about, okay, what's my next big race going to be? Mm-hmm. And, and she's talking about possibly doing one in April. Mm-hmm. Right, and yes. so she, she's not talking about. Oh yeah, that was great. I want to do another big race. Um, you know, I had um, another athlete that I coach uh, sent me something about how Daniela Reef, and this is important to mention as well. So Daniela Reef was the was the Ironman World Champion this year, uh, and and she's brilliant. She won both the half Ironman World Championship that was here in Chattanooga, and then the Ironman World Championship that was in Kona, and then now she's going to do some other Ironman last weekend. Okay, um, and and. The athlete that, that I coach wrote to me and said, said doesn't she need a break? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, yeah, she does. And in a roundabout sort of way, she is taking a break. Mm-hmm. And so her performance at this Ironman that she was going to is not going to be nearly the performance that she had at Kona. But she has sponsorship responsibilities. And, yeah. and that's particularly big in long course triathlon. Yeah. And so, so she is kind of taking a break, but she's showing up at this other race. Mm-hmm. And she's going to race it to the best of her ability right now, mm-hmm. um, but it's not going to be one of those really kind of high-end performances like, like you saw at Kona or, or, or at the 70.3. And so I think that's another thing that kind of gives a lot of people stress. Mm-hmm. As they look at it and they say, oh, well, Danielle Reese racing again. She's going to a race. Right. <laughs> you know. And, and the other thing, and where that also really kind of connects with recreational runners so I can tell you right now, in Thanksgiving, December, it is the holiday season. Mm-hmm. It is the you know, time of giving. So I can tell you, I do a lot of races at this time of year where it's a lot of charity races, mm-hmm. right? It's a lot. Like we had one in my neighborhood yesterday. Um, but this is where, the, you're, where your smiling friend ran? Yes, exactly. Right on. But that's where you go into it and you say, all right, I'm going to run this 5K at marathon pace. Mm-hmm. And that's just going to be how it goes. I'm here to enjoy this. This is not a redlining effort. Mm-hmm. So... I think that's also too where people get confused. They may see their friends posting pictures of themselves running races for 12 months of the year. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do it right, you can run a race every month. Mm-hmm. But you have to take a very different approach right. eight months out of the year, you right. know, so to speak. You can't treat every race like we deal with Chicago where it's like we're going to, you know... Um, really focus our efforts on this one race. Yeah, and, and, and the, the phrase you learn there, if you want to do it right. And I think that's so important. Yes. Um, because if, and, and again, and I, I also like the word you used a minute ago when you said suboptimal, mm-hmm. um, that, that if, if you want to, and, and endurance sports is a big tent, if you want to be a person who just kind of runs at solid, suboptimal level all year long, that's great. Yeah. Don't periodize. <laughs> yeah. You don't have, just, you know, do whatever you want to do and just stay constantly in shape. But if you want to be somebody who, who gets an optimal performance, um, and whether that optimal performance is going to get you under the time limits at an Ironman, or whether it's going to qualify you for Boston, or whether it's going to qualify you for Kona, if you want to be somebody who, who, who uh, hits the optimal level, um, I don't think you really have any choice but to periodize. Um, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so that's right. And 
So, one, you really have to because, as we've talked about before, you, you can only peak for physically for one or two races a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it takes that long to hit all the different systems and build them up to, to their highest level. Mm-hmm. Two, mentally. I mean, it, yeah. running a race, redlining a race I'm is draining. Yeah. I mean... And training for one is draining. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you need to, you know... I've talked to people that said, my spouse won't let me do another Ironman or marathon for another year because they said they need some help with some of the chores or they, like... Right? Yeah. No, totally. I, I, I'm super glad you said that because I always think about, like, recovery. When my athletes are recovering from a race, I'm like, you need to physically recover. Of course you do. Um, even though maybe you don't need as much physical recovery as we thought if you're, you know, based on that research I just said. But 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 physical recovery, Yeah. There's there's mental recovery too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watch what I eat so 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 closely in in the months, the weeks and months leading up to a target race. Um, that afterwards, I need to eat some M and M's, and I choose M and M's by the way for an example specifically because of a conversation I was on Facebook recently with an athlete who is in recovery phase, uh, and she was like, oh, "I'm not going to eat any M and M's." I was like, "This is the time to eat the M and M's." Yeah, you know. Um, Fresh steam M&Ms until you don't want another one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then, and then and then when you go into that, that part of the year where you can't really have M&Ms or where you shouldn't really have M&Ms, you don't want them because you, you've had so many of them during your recovery phase. Right. You know? Um, I also think that, I mean, there's a financial recovery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Very much so. Um, and, and, there, and there's a relationship recovery that has to take place. Um, because your family, I mean, your family has to make sacrifices for you. Your coworkers have to make sacrifices for you. They have to pick up your slack when you're focused on your race. Um, and you take a few months here, um, and, and you recover physically, you recover mentally, you recover, uh, uh logistically or, 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 you know, your relationship wise, you know, you mm-hmm. start spending more time with your family again. Um, and, and, and you recover in terms of your work. I mean, you, you start picking up the slack so that now your coworkers can, can accomplish their big outside mm-hmm. of work goal. Right. Um, all that stuff is super important, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I mean, so and it, it, it periodization. It's a very catch-all term, you know. Like we said, it, it really is just saying you're you're dividing the year up into you know chunks and cycles. Mm-hmm. And it really, it's also something too. When we when we use that term, we usually speak of it in terms of the yearly calendar. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, we also kind of periodize on a daily and weekly level, hmm. right? What do you mean? You know, so, like in a given day, you run hard for an hour or two. And then you sleep. I mean, then you recover. <laughs> yeah. On a weekly basis, you have a hard run, then you have an easy run. Hard run, easy run. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and you can kind of keep going out. You know, in a month, you'll have three mm-hmm. hard weeks, and then a lot of people have a down week to mm-hmm. kind of make sure that they're not pushing it too hard yeah. week after week. Yeah. So the real concept is just the concept of, you know, stress recovery, stress recovery. Because you stress the muscle, whether it's you know the emotional muscle, even the brain, so to speak, the financial muscle. Yeah, exactly. Um, or bare bones in our case. Um, but then the it's real, a, yeah, the financial muscle is not a very strong muscle. <laughs> um, but but then the real gain is not from the stress itself; it's in the recovery from that stress. Mm-hmm. It's not in the tearing down the base; it's the rebuilding of the base even stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's important to understand because a lot of times as runners we kind of have this mentality of no pain, no gain. The harder the better. If some is good, then a lot must be great. Yeah. But it's really in the recovery and in the planning and in the systematic, um, you know, stress and rest that you get the most benefit. Right on, right on. Um, and so let's let's talk about the other wrinkle to periodization that I think is important too. 
um, and 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 that is this, and it has to do with with with, with that sort of broader um, macro cycle view, if you will. Um, the 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 I really like what you said about like the the daily thing because like on a philosophical level that makes it sound like periodization is is natural, right? Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's like encodedness, but but if you take a step back and look at like months at a time, a macro cycle, like training for that one big race, that a race, you know, the one that do you watch what you eat and you plan what you wear and you go to the tanning bed beforehand and all that sort of thing. So that, that, that we wouldn't know anybody that does that. No, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> but, but, um, but the, the other kind of fundamental part of periodization is that as you get closer to that big race, your workouts start to more closely mimic what is needed in that big race. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of periodization as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because periodization, it was actually started by, I think, Hungarian exercise physiologists like 40 or 50 years ago. Um, because it used to be actually that, that, like back in the day, athletes just kind of, well, they did one of two things. Either they just kind of stayed in shape the whole time, all mm-hmm. the time. That's right. Or, or they periodized, but they didn't really call it that. They didn't articulate it that way. Right. Um, but, uh, but anyway... Um, you know, think about like chariots of fire of them, like, you know, running on the beach and all that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that was, why do sprinters need to be running on the beach? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. but, so they, but, they, but it's because they were just staying generally fit. Right. Um, and so, so anyway, um, uh, and so the, the idea there that, that you get more like your, your race and that you stimulate the systems you're going to need most in your race as you get closer to your race that's kind of fundamental to periodization. And so if you think about like a 5K, like you're training for, for a 5K or a 10K, like those NCAA runners that we were talking about at the outset here, um, that's, that, that takes a certain um, system or that draws on a certain system, your VO2 max system, much more heavily than, say, Shalane Flanagan was drawing on it during, during the New York City Marathon. And so the, the race-specific workouts they're doing in the last few weeks before their target race are going to look different than than mm-hmm. the ones that Shalane Flanagan was doing in the last few weeks before her target race because they have right. very different races. Right, right. Which call upon different systems. Right, to right. a varying degree. And it's interesting. So so over the course of just like the last ten or fifteen years, um, a concept has emerged called reverse periodization, mm-hmm. in which rather than starting with the with the moderate longer stuff and getting shorter and faster as you go along, which is what you do if you're training for a short distance, rather you start with the short fast stuff and as you get closer to your big target races you get longer and more moderate since that's what your race is longer right. and more moderate like a marathon or an Ironman or something else like that now reverse periodization is a little bit of a misnomer because as we we're saying that's just periodization right you're still just like getting getting more race specific as you get closer to your race but um but that, that what that means is that those of you who are preparing for those marathons like the boston marathon and stuff like that um when you get closer to the Boston Marathon, when you get into to February, March, and certainly, of course, April, you're going to be doing longer, more moderately paced efforts because that's what your marathon is. That means that now you need to be doing short, fast stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit counterintuitive for people sometimes. Very much so. So also to, to back it up a little bit, um, so marathon running didn't get big until, what, the 70s or so? And even then it wasn't big. It was just it went from something that one eccentric in the town did to maybe three <laughs> um so but the track and field world was kind of a vibrant world for i mean starting in the early 1900s mm-hmm. so when they say reverse periodization that's because they had 50 to 70 years of people saying okay you start long you start with the endurance base right. and then you get shorter and shorter to sharpen right. your speed 
Um, but the real key is, yeah, as you get as you get closer to, to your race peak, you need to tap into the system that will essentially be the most stressed or be the most critical, you know, as you get closer to that particular race. Right. Which, of course, in endurance running or in marathon running is your endurance. Right. It's, you know, how long can you be on your feet moving at a swift pace, mm-hmm. you know. Which, exactly. Which I can tell you, for me personally, that takes some getting used to because I grew up in the high school, college track world, which you start off with, I want to run this many miles in the summertime, and right. then we sharpen it up and right. run, you know, right. shorter, quicker stuff. Me too. And then, so it was kind of a weird, it took about a year or so to get used to the opposite thinking, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we do now. Like, So if you go to our ITL track meet, or track uh, practices, Right now, it's a lot of 400s and 600s at a quick pace. Mm-hmm. But then we're going to add more and more distance as we get closer and closer to the Boston's and the Publix marathons and things like that. Right, yeah. And and, and that's the way it works. And it's and it's funny, too, because over the course of the past... Over the course of the past few years... So one of the reasons why... One of the reasons why... Many reasons why people hire coaches is because coaches make you do the workouts you don't want to do. You okay. know? So, so, so a coach will, will say, hey, you need to go swim now. Mm-hmm. And and left to your own devices, you're not going to go swim. Yeah. You know, or you need to go to the weight room. Well, left to your own devices, you might be like, I'm going to run rather than go to the weight room. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. And so, so um, and and one thing that I found over the course of the past few years, and and this is this is not just me finding this. This is actually documented. Is that that athletes left to their own devices, they will do what they like to do. Mm-hmm. And so, if you take somebody who's doing long stuff, they're doing Ironmans, doing marathons. What they like to do is the long, grueling stuff. They like to do the stuff that's long at tempo pace. And, and when you say to them, hey, you need to do a 20-second sprint, mm-hmm. that is like so far outside the comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they can be very resistant to that, and they don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's funny because right now we're, we're, we're asking athletes and telling athletes that that's what they need to be doing. And, and there's a lot of pushback against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's also a lot of people that are saying that this is harder than the super long moderate pace stuff because that's what they're accustomed to. Right. Um, and so yeah, athletes really wanna they they want to continue doing um, uh, just kind of moderate stuff all the time. And so what I what I was about to say is what I found is that that a lot of times when I start coaching an athlete and we're in this phase, they're like I've never done this sort of thing before. I was like, well, what did you do when you were four months out from your your, your marathon? Well, I would do the same sort of workouts I would do when I was a month out from my marathon. Mm-hmm. And that's not periodization, right? Um, and so, so I found that that while you and I, when we were training for those short races in high school and in college, we would start with the long slow stuff and we'd get down to the short fast stuff. Adults who are training for long stuff, they never do the short fast stuff. Yes, they just leave it out entirely, and they just do that sort of long, moderate stuff all the time, mm-hmm. um, and that's neglecting a major aspect of of optimal performance. Yeah, and a major physiological component that goes into running fast and performing well, even at the long distance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, the best way that I've I've actually come to justify it, besides you know the the, the longer explanation we're given now, the best way I've come to justify it for for people who. Um, are really resistant is is simply by saying if you can run a 400 fast it'll make your mile faster if you can run a mile faster it'll make your your 5k right. faster 5k faster will make your 10k faster 10k faster will make your half marathon faster half marathon faster will make your marathon faster mm-hmm. that that that's the best way i can justify it in 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 the most basic terms possible <laughs> right yeah yeah because if you, if you increase your max speed so to speak then running at 70 percent of your max speed will inevitably 
increase. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. the rising tide raises all boats. Right, right. Absolutely. Very good. Mm-hmm. What else you got to say about it? Uh, just that to me, it's, I mean, while, while you were kind of given the, the history, it was interesting to think about. So the, you know, so the Greeks, if you ever read kind of some of their Olympic training, they would just have you their athletes. Like, like way back I'm in the day? I'm talking like way back in the day, like the barefoot about, runners. Okay, you're talking about like <laughs> oh, yeah. barefoot runners. They're still barefoot runners now. Dude. That's true. Okay, that's true. <laughs> um, like Julius Caesar. There we go. Is that better? So he was a Roman, but okay, keep going. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> I just keep getting better and better. Um, they would just have their athletes run a certain distance every single day. Mm-hmm. And that was what they did. Mm-hmm. And then in like the 19... And then that's really what endurance athletes did, you know, for essentially ever and ever until the 1930s when the Germans incre- uh, started interval training. Mm. So in a way, that was almost periodization within mm-hmm. an individual workout. We say, all right, here you're going to run fast, here you're going to run slow. Here you're going to run fast, here you're going to run slow. And then our man Emil Zadopek, exactly. the Czech runner... Just took off with that with the, with the interval training in the, in, in the 1950s. Anyway, were you about to talk about him? Because I talk about him all the time. So if you're going to talk, yeah, about that's, him. I would say that's your guy. Go for it. Uh, yeah. So so and and he actually so one reason why I appreciate Emil Zadopek and one reason why he's on the wall of my of my workout room and one reason why this podcast is named after him or is is, is references a quote or one of his most famous quotations. Um, is that he was super experimental with all that stuff too, mm-hmm. like to such a degree that today we're like, uh, I don't know about that. But I mean, he would run, he would run quarter mile repeats all the time, and he would never entirely recover from them. Um, which you know, given what we know today, he probably would have been even faster and even more accomplished if he would have taken some time to recover. Um, but he would do, he would do repeats with his wife on his back. Mm-hmm. Um, he would put on big, huge army boots because he was in the military, like everybody in Czechoslovakia at the time was. Right. Um, and he would go running through the snow, and so it would force him to like lift up his knees really high as he was running in these big, huge army boots. He would run 200 meters with holding his breath. Holy smokes! <laughs> Can you imagine how awful that would be? <laughs> um, that, that literally he would he would he would hold his breath and run 200 meters as fast as he possibly could. But swimmers do that. It's called yeah. breath control. That's exactly... I, I was thinking you know? of swimming when you said that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, 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 I will assign people to do breath control repeats as, as a coach when, mm-hmm. when they're swimming. Yeah. I mean, swimmers do that. Yeah. So, and, and they get fast, and so did Emil's Autopack. But I appreciate the fact that he was so experimental. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, well, let's see if this works. Let's see if this works. And I think that that's, that's so much of what endurance training is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we talk about research here. Yeah. That's right. And you can just kind of see over time, periodization became more and more. Um, it went from something you did within an individual workout to an individual week to a month. I mean, it's just it's just the idea that, you know, simply running to the stop sign and back every day is not the optimal way to train your body. You have to work different energy systems at different times in order to realize the results you want in the end. And that says it all. Right mm-hmm. on. So, as, as they say in Again to Carthage, lots of things work. The question is, what's the most practical and efficient way? Again to Carthage, bringing up John Parker. I appreciate that. And that's a good note to end on. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Always right. enjoy it. All right. We will be looking forward to next time. There you have the latest edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks for listening. Patrick, glad you're here. Always glad to be here. Always enjoy talking training and uh, training philosophy. Right on. We're going to get you all on a whole lot more often over the
course of the next little while here. Uh, don't forget to visit us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast. Um, go to our blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com um, or visit us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. You can also visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash performance, or you can go to itlcoaching.com. And at itlcoaching on Twitter as well. Uh, the final uh, uh, sponsor of the podcast who is looking after the fellows while we're, we're up here recording podcasts and talking about training and stuff like that, which is a pretty important sponsor role here, uh, is, is my wife, uh, Casey, the travel agent, Casey Travel Planner. Uh, you can find her at facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner, M-E-V. Um, or you can drop her a line at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, Travel Planner at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.